0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy,
1: And I'm Dublina Chakraborty.
0: And probably for the first time since our 300 episode, we're going to be talking about a subject that most of you might know better from the movie version, the 54th Massachusetts Colored Infantry. And if you've seen the 1989 film Glory, you know that the story covers an all-African-American regiment in the Civil War, and their white colonel Robert Gould Shaw, who's played by a barely-out-of-Ferris Bueller, Matthew Broderick, And despite required Hollywood tweaks and changed timelines, I mean, they've got to sell tickets after all, Glory is considered one of the best Civil War films, probably because it had Shelby Foote, the author, as its historical advisor and a really well-respected cast, Broderick. Morgan Freeman, a young Denzel Washington, I actually checked out the review of Glory in the New York Times articles, uh, archives, and they said he was clearly on his way to a major screen career. Indeed. Um, so we're, of course, going to be talking about some of the high points featured in the film Glory. The regiments parade through Boston, their pay refusal, their tragic battle at Fort Wagner. But we're also going to be talking about why the 54th was so remarkable in the first place and why it took until 1863 for a northern state to raise an all-black regiment.
1: That last fact is especially surprising when you consider African Americans fought in the Revolutionary War. So why in the Civil War, when their liberty was again at stake, were blacks not initially allowed to fight? Well, when the war began, many free blacks wanted to join, but a 1792 law prevented them from doing so. And also Northerners as a whole weren't in favor of it. They believed African Americans were unsuitable soldiers, cowardly or unintelligent and they thought that they weren't equipped to do anything beyond the hard labor work that was required for war. So grave digging, hauling, cooking, things like that. And if you listen to our episode on the Stono Rebellion, and if you've heard of other revolts like Nat Turner's, it's also easy to see that there was a fair amount of fear involved. It seemed a risk almost to outfit and arm black soldiers.
0: But opinions did start to change over time, partly because the war dragged on longer than people had expected it to, and fewer white men were so gung-ho to go enlist anymore. Also, abolitionists started to make promoting black service a prime wartime goal. Many saw it as the natural road toward full freedom, that you had to participate in earning that freedom by fighting. And one of the most famous abolitionists of the day, the former slave Frederick Douglass, even said, quote, once the black man gets upon his person the brass letters U.S., a musket on his shoulder and bullets in his pocket, there is no power on earth which can deny that he has earned the right to citizenship in the United States. Finally, though, some northern generals, not all, saw enlisting African-American troops as a way to win the war, to end the war. General Grant considered enlisting black troops as a definitive way to beat the Confederacy. I mean, it it makes sense, too. You have this huge minority of the population with a very strong investment in the fight. So why not let them in and uh, let them have a go at it?
1: So, by July 1862, laws did start to change to allow more black participation. Congress, first of all, repealed the 1792 law barring blacks from service. They also passed the Confiscation Act, which made all slaves of rebel masters free as soon as they crossed Union lines. And they passed the Militia Act, which empowered the president to set up black militias. So within a month, the War Department had authorized Brigadier General Rufus Saxton, who controlled the Union-occupied area of South Carolina, to raise five black regiments with white officers. And the volunteering was sluggish at first, but by November, the first South Carolina volunteer regiment was mustered under the command of a Massachusetts abolitionist named Colonel Thomas Wentworth Higginson. A second regiment was the then formed soon after, commanded by Colonel James Montgomery and the first and the second Carolina regiments quickly proved their worth. They raided Georgia, Florida, and even occupied Jacksonville.
0: And similarly organized groups of soldiers were soon formed in Kansas and occupied areas of Louisiana, made up of freedmen and former slaves. So by fall 1862, there were a few regiments of black soldiers in action, but so far none had been created by northern states. It s- still seemed like a black army was a ways off. One obstacle of course was the border states President Lincoln had said quote to arm the Negroes would turn 50,000 bayonets from the loyal border states against us that were for us but the abolitionists really continued to press their cause as did the realities of a long war you know you got to have enough soldiers to fight the thing and finally on January 1st 1863 Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation into law and the proclamation meant that Lincoln could not not only remove resources from their conquered owners and laboring slaves from their conquered owners, he could use those freedmen to further his own wartime aims by turning them into soldiers. So African-Americans could now enlist in the Army and Navy. And the way Lincoln put it to Grant really kind of sums the whole thing up. He said, it works doubly, weakening the enemy and strengthening us.
1: So Massachusetts seemed like a natural place to form an all-black state regiment since it had been the heart of the abolition movement for years. Massachusetts Governor John Andrew, who was an abolitionist himself, believed ardently that African Americans must play a part in ending Southern slavery. He really
0: saw it as a moral issue. Like, if this happens without their participation, how can we all go on with that as a as the
1: reality that's why he petitioned Secretary of War Edwin Stanton for permission to form a state regiment and it was approved by the end of January so it was officially on at that point His first order of business was, of course, attracting soldiers. Massachusetts did not have a large African-American population at this time, and according to William C. Cassiatus in American History, only 100 men volunteered in those first six weeks.
0: So that must have been a major blow to Andrew, who is so excited about the prospect of forming a regiment in his state. So he decided to expand his net, go beyond Massachusetts. And with the help of other abolitionists, he raised... $5,000 to set up these recruiting posts across the northern states, trying to draw the cream of the crop in, basically, eventually attracting 1,000 recruits. He soon had enough recruits to form not only a Massachusetts 54th, but a Massachusetts 55th too. And the 54th was a pretty diverse bunch, as as you'd figure from these recruiting posts all over the North. The 54th featured men from 24 different states, the District of Columbia, the West Indies and Africa, 25% of them had been slaves, and some were pretty high-profile guys, too. Two of Frederick Douglass' sons, for instance, enlisted. It was, uh, like I said, kind of the best of the best were attracted to this regiment.
1: Governor Andrew also promised potential black recruits that this wasn't a setup and white officers wouldn't be against their own men. They'd be committed abolitionists with real war experience.
0: I think the fear was that they would, they would pair the black troops with somebody who either didn't care about them, you know, was racist, right. or somebody who just didn't know what he was doing. And that would certainly speak to how much you cared about your regiment if you put them with a poorly trained officer.
1: Well, Governor Andrews Pick ended up being Captain Robert Gould Shaw, the 25-year-old son of abolitionists Francis and Sarah Shaw. And Shaw's father was an extremely wealthy former merchant from Boston who had retired early to West Roxbury for an academic life translating literature. And Shaw grew up attending top schools around New York and Europe enlisting as a private when the war started. And fun-loving and hard to discipline as he was, Shaw really thrived in the Army, where he was eventually commissioned as a second lieutenant And finally, a captain with the 2nd Regiment of the Massachusetts Infantry. He saw action and was wounded twice. So he had abolitionist cred. On one hand, he also had war experience on the other hand. And together, when you put those two together, he seemed like the perfect candidate to lead just, the 54. Yeah,
0: just the kind of guy that Governor Andrew was looking for. But when Shaw was offered the command, delivered personally from the governor to Shaw's father, so he received this, this offer from his own father, he didn't jump at the chance. And he had a few reasons for, for doing that. For one thing, he liked his current gig. He liked being a captain with the Massachusetts second. Second, he wasn't thrilled at the idea of what would undoubtedly be a very high-profile, controversial, and likely unpopular job. You know, a lot of eyes would be on him. And then most surprisingly, he wasn't really that much of an abolitionist. That had been a major point in his selection, but uh, his personal beliefs weren't as strong as those of his parents.
1: And surely his friends must have known this, but to the wider world, his parents' reputation... Basically made his own. They had joined the American Anti-Slavery Society a year after he was born, and he had grown up playing with William Lloyd Garrison's kids. But Shaw himself, while anti-slavery, he didn't see that as his prime motivation for fighting. He was more of a patriot. He felt uh,
0: upset that the North was being slighted, you know, that it wasn't about slavery for
1: him. According to a Russell Duncan book on Shaw, in one 1858 letter, Shaw actually wrote to his mother, quote, I don't talk and think slavery all the time. And it's likely that it was Shaw's mother who finally urged him to accept the offer But his letter to his future wife, Annie Haggerty, suggests that he also had glory on his mind as a motivator. He said, quote, You know how many eminent men consider a Negro army of the greatest importance to our country at this time. If it turns out to be so, how fully repaid the pioneers in the movement will be for what they may have to go through. I feel convinced I shall never regret having taken this step as far as I myself am concerned, for while I was undecided, I felt ashamed of myself as if I were cowardly.
0: So whatever his reasons, Shaw did ultimately accept the commission, and he was promoted to colonel. And from there, he oversaw the training of his men at a camp near Boston. But one important thing to remember here all of the officers in the unit, not just Shaw, were white. And many of them started working with pretty stereotypical views of their soldiers. And Shaw was certainly included in that. He would use racial names when writing home to his parents. He'd express his surprise at how intelligent his men were. Things that seem a little icky now when you read them today. But working together did eventually foster a sense of unity between the soldiers and the officers, especially since Both of them, both the men and the officers, were under intense scrutiny from white soldiers. Uh, For instance, when the men who had been promised fair pay at recruitment were only offered $10 per month, which was $3 less than white soldiers were paid, Shaw wrote to the governor vowing that the whole regiment, including him, would refuse payment until it was fair and equal. And we're going to talk about that pay question a little bit more later. It's kind of overshadowed by Later events that the 54th go through, but it's one of their most important contributions to the war.
1: And the bravery of both the men and the officers was also tested long before they even left the training grounds shortly after muster the Confederate Congress passed an act stating that any black soldier or white officer commanding black soldiers would be summarily executed if caught behind rebel lines. So that's something that's going to certainly strengthen the
0: ties between the officers and the men themselves. So the development of the 54th, though, as we said, was under intense scrutiny, but it was also kind of a spectator sport almost. About 3,000 people ended up visiting them to watch the training of Douglass. By, not too surprising if his sons were were involved, but all sorts of people came by to watch their progress. People were interested in it, invested in it. But by May 1863, it was time for the men to to ship out, to get going. And on the 18th, Governor Andrew himself delivered the regimental flags to Shaw, and they got their first assignment, which was going to be South Carolina. So, unlike those earlier. earlier troops we mentioned that were in Kansas or in Louisiana, they were going to really be in the thick of things.
1: Their procession to the Boston Harbor included a march through downtown and review in front of the governor before they boarded a ship bound for Port Royal Island, South Carolina, reporting to the Department of the South for duty. So, what was going on in South Carolina at this time? There were attacks on Charleston's fortifications, mostly, but not for Shaw's men. They were met with the bitter disappointment of manual labor. What they, what this was supposed to not be about. They showed up and they had to do some ditch digging. So it seemed like they were back to square one. Yeah,
0: why well, go through all this training, all this pageantry, and just go back to digging ditches. So the 54th didn't get to see any action until June 8th when they joined the troops of Colonel James Montgomery and his all African American 2nd South Carolina Regiment. Even this though their first taste of soldiering was pretty much a disappointment. Shaw and his men under the command of Colonel Montgomery were ordered to plunder and burn this tiny town in Georgia called Darien it's a bit north of Brunswick and Shaw was deeply disturbed with the order to burn down this defenseless, pretty unimportant town and afterward wrote to his superiors about the incident, knowing that writing about it, talking about it like this, could mean disciplinary action for speaking up. Ultimately, though, the officer who commanded Montgomery to sack the town was not too long after relieved of his command by Lincoln. So maybe it was worth it for, for Shaw to speak up. Finally, though, July 16th, the 54th saw the type of action they had been hoping for all along, not ditch digging, not burning down people's homes or businesses, but actual soldiering.
1: Yeah, they joined white troops on James Island near Charleston, carrying themselves well, and they ensured the safe retreat of the 10th Connecticut Infantry after a surprise Confederate attack. One Connecticut soldier even wrote home to his mother that the 54th had, quote, "...fought like heroes." So Shaw's brigade commander, General George C. Strong, had heard about how well the men had done on James Island and asked Shaw if he'd lead an attack on Fort Wagner on Morris Island, one of the strategic defenses of Charleston's harbor. So... He was all for this. I mean, this was a great opportunity for them. Shaw had been angling for this assignment, and he and his men, as well as Strong, saw it as a great honor.
0: Yeah, it was an honor to to lead the attack like this. But not everybody saw it that way. The division commander, Major General Truman Seymour only agreed to Strong's request because he saw the fifty fourth as disposable. So for him it was it was not a privilege to give these men the the honor of leading the attack against the fort. They were just cannon fodder and he would just as soon dispose of them first. The geography of Fort Wagner made the assault especially tricky, and we're going to have to explain it a little bit for the attack itself to make sense. So from afar, the earthenwork fort really looked kind of like sand hills, but inside there were 1,300 men from the North Carolina 51st and 31st and some South Carolina artillery men, so it's very well defended. And since it was in the middle of a sandy peninsula, the fort was only open to direct assault on one side, which happened to be this tiny little sliver of sand that was between the surf and the marsh. I mean, if you've ever been to any of the sea islands, you can kind of imagine the terrain um, in the less developed areas. So this meant that the charge would have to be led in waves because they only have that tiny sliver of land to work on. And uh, they could only fit a few men shoulder to shoulder on the shore to, to run ahead. So all through the day on the 18th, the Union artillery shelled Fort Wagner, you know, hoping to weaken the defenses a little bit. By early evening, Shaw and 600 of his men had grouped themselves into Two wings made of five companies, and they were using the surf as their guide to the fort. But before the charge, Shaw told them, the eyes of thousands will look on what you do tonight. He handed over his personal effects to a civilian he had made friends with, um, knowing full well that he was probably not going to come back
1: from this charge. But using his words for motivation, they built to a full sprint across the sand and made it all the way to the fort under heavy fire. Sergeant Major Lewis Douglas wrote that, quote, not a man flinched, though it was a trying time. A shell would explode and clear space of 20 feet. Our men would close up again. Shaw led the charge until he was shot dead at the parapet. The flag bearer staked the flag in the parapet, but the men only had the fort for a short time before being forced to retreat. Some were shot by advancing friendly fire when they did so. 23-year-old Sergeant William Carney, by this point shot in the head, chest, right arm, and leg, grabbed the flag on his way out, delivering it back to the Union lines. And for this, he became the first of 21 black men during the war to win the Medal of Honor.
0: Other men, of course, couldn't make that retreat and became prisoners. I mean, you know, maybe they were too wounded to be able to get out. Sergeant Robert J. Simmons, for instance, was shot in the arm taken prisoner and died later in a Charleston hospital. And if you've listened to our earlier episode on the New York draft riots, this will really resonate with you. But when storming the fort, he hadn't known that only three days earlier, New York draft rioters had attacked his mother and sister there and beat his seven-year-old nephew to death. So one of the probably greatest tragedies of the 54th. Later waves of soldiers couldn't hold the fort either, though. You know, it wasn't just the 54th trying to, trying to take it. Overall, 1,515 Union men were killed, wounded, or went missing, with 256 of them from the 54th, which was the highest regimental casualty number among the participating regiments.
1: Militarily, the mission was considered a failure. Area scouting had been subpar. That was one reason why the fort hadn't been adequately weakened. And the men leading the charge, the 54th, had never practiced storming a fort. So there were a lot of things working against like them. Seems like an
0: obvious flaw, too. I mean, that they were able to even make it now seems surprising when you know that they haven't been able to practice that. But the discipline and the bravery of the 54th was... Duly noted, a month after the disaster, Grant wrote to Lincoln emphasizing how much he now supported the use of black troops. And according to a Michael J. Varhola article in Civil War Times, by December of that same year, 60 black regiments had been formed in the Union Army. And they weren't regiments of gravediggers or cooks or laborers, but regiments of soldiers. And by the war's end, about 180,000 black men had fought.
1: Ken Burns' documentary on the Civil War includes an even more startling figure, though blacks made up less than 1% of the northern population at the start of the war. By the end of the war, they made up 10% of the army. So what ultimately happened to the 54th after that fateful battle. Well, this battle pretty much tore the regiment apart. It wouldn't fight in another major engagement again. And it took until March 1865 for Congress to finally order that the men who had now gone unpaid for 18 months to be compensated retroactively for their service.
0: Shaw was buried with his men in a pit at the site of Fort Wagner as a sign of disrespect. But when his father learned where he was, learned how he was buried, he said he was pleased that his son had been buried with his men on the field where he fell. He even prevented later attempts to relocate Shaw's body. And so... With his family definitely assuring his legacy with acts like that, it's no surprise Shaw became kind of a martyred figure after the fact. And if you take a closer look at his letters, which contain, as historian Joan Waugh puts it, racist and condescending language, you know, it, it may have affected that reputation a little bit, but certainly not during the lifetime of his men. I think that's an important thing to consider. He wasn't... Um, He wasn't reduced in their eyes, it seems. Only two weeks after the attack on Fort Wagner, one of his sergeants had written, quote, I still feel more eager for the struggle than I ever yet have, for I now wish to have revenge for our gallant colonel and the spilt blood of our captain. We expect to plant the stars and stripes on the city of Charleston
1: veterans of the 54th quickly began raising money for their colonel's memorial, hoping to build something on Morris Island. They instead wound up sponsoring a school for emancipated children in South Carolina, which was named for Shaw, while Boston abolitionists raised money for a monument in their city. By 1884, the commission was given to Augustus St. gaudens who was the biggest American sculptor of that day, and he finished his work in 1897. But while some have criticized St. gaudens for elevating Shaw above his men on horseback and for modeling the black soldiers from live subjects instead of old photos, it's generally considered a brilliant memorial. Allison Lukes, who's the curator of sculpture at the National Gallery of Art, calls it, quote, a knockout.
0: The name St. Gaudens might ring a bell for some of you guys, too. We mentioned him, or rather, uh, David McCullough mentioned him a bit in our interview with him last year. Another random side note too, Shaw isn't the only family member with a memorial. His sister, Josephine Shaw Lowell, who was a social reformer, was the first woman to earn a public memorial in New York City. So there you go. Um, I, I thought a lot about this story, and in a way it is heroic, and I can definitely see the, the outcome is positive that African-Americans are able to fight when they want to. But the story really kind of bothered me in a way, too. It took such an epic failure to catch people's attention and change minds. And that that disturbed
1: me that it took so much. And the the other things, the fact that they didn't get paid. I mean, there's a lot that doesn't quite sit right think is. about all the details of the story. Well, and another
0: thing to consider, too, black soldiers had already fought admirably at Port Hudson and Millican's Bend by this point, but neither event really received much coverage. So it's almost like it took something this horrible, this disastrous, to catch people's attention. And And, yeah, that does bother me. And I think if you want to learn a little bit more about the plight or life, depending on how you look at it, of a black soldier. There's some great resources that the National Park Service has online. Really fantastic accounts of the history of African-Americans in the military, in the Civil War. Another resource I might recommend is the Massachusetts Historical Society. They have portraits of many of the men of the 54th. And I think one criticism of this story sometimes is that you have Shaw, he's a well-defined figure and um, very much tied up with the regiment, but it's harder to get as detailed personal stories from many of the men of the regiment. It is, after all, a a company of men, you know, it's a a large group of people. But the Massachusetts Historical Society does have portraits, you know, portraits of the little drummer boys and stuff who look like they're in their very early teens at the oldest. And I think, for me, that helped put a little... Personality behind the men of the regiment and not just Shaw.
1: Yeah, that's good to know. That's one thing I thought of, too, while going through this, is that although we, we did have a couple of quotes in here from soldiers, but it would have been nice to know a little bit more about the individuals who fought.
0: And I think that's a good place to, to start and to learn a lot more about African-Americans serving in the Civil War. So um, if you guys have any other suggestions of, of other resources relating to the Massachusetts 54th or any comments on the movie glory, what you thought of it, um, any historical inaccuracies, I know you guys love to talk about those. Um, you can email us. We're at history podcast at discovery.com or also on Twitter at Mist in History, and we are on Facebook.
1: And while you're looking for inaccuracies and in glory, you can also check out some other historical inaccuracies and in movies in a top 10 article that we have on our website called 10 Historically Inaccurate Movies, appropriately enough. And you can look that up by visiting our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House Work's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.